You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Accounted For, the podcast that shares and inspires unconventional career journeys. Please help the podcast grow by telling your best friends all about it. And also give us a great rating on iTunes and all your other listeners. Leave a nice review if this was really helpful for you as well. And that's about it. You know all what to do. Subscribe to the newsletter, all that fun stuff. Go on omdventures.com to look at all the fun stuff out there. Anyhow, today's conversation is a really exciting one. It's with Alex Norman. He is the co-founder of TechTO, or also known as Tech Toronto. He's also the head of Canada for AngelList and the partner for N49P. Through his various ventures and roles, Alex is an investor and tech entrepreneur who is building the Canadian tech ecosystem. Tech Toronto is on a mission to develop the technology and innovation economy in Canada through its wide-reaching events. I've gone to one myself, and they we talk about it briefly in our interview, but it's definitely one I would really recommend for anyone who might be in the tech ecosystem or is curious about it, just try going to one. It, you'll get a great sense of community and it's also really informative too. Like I came out of it learning a lot about the businesses that actually presented their business models as well as their journeys as well. So it's a really fun time. So I definitely recommend you check it out. And AngelList, I've had a previous podcast guest come on and talk about AngelList briefly, but we go a little deeper in our conversation on the venture side and the company itself is a startup investing platform that manages about, I think Alex said it was about a $1.8 billion in assets under management. That is a lot of money. And kind of carrying over to that is N49P, which is a VC fund for early stage companies in Canada that Alex is a partner in. So prior to these fascinating ventures, Alex was a investment banker for Lehman Brothers, and he was there during the dot-com bubble period in the late 1990s. He also worked in various startups in San Fran, New York, as well as London, UK. He received his MBA from Wharton, became a management consultant for McKinsey & Co., and also co-founded HomeSave, one of Canada's largest furniture e-commerce companies. And this was also later acquired by Rebellion Media. So given how interesting (laughs) Alex's journey has been, just from reading, I'd say maybe just little highlights of it, we talked through all these various aspects, how he made decisions in each of his various career pivots and the circumstances that existed at the time. So we tried to actually dissect out what was the environment like, what was going through his mind and all the good stuff there that I'm always just fascinated to learn about. And we also cover what the early years of building communities is like because Angelus, Tech Toronto, they're also giant communities as well as what he did with HomeSave where it's an e-commerce community. And we learn. We talk about the mistakes he's learned, what he's, what mistakes he's had, what he's learned from each of them, as well as his various unconventional beliefs that have helped him, I guess, motivate himself through this very fascinating and interesting career journey. This was a lot of fun. I came out of it really excited and pumped and hopeful for my own future <laughs> in a very selfish note. And so I really hope you find a lot of value out of this as much as I have. And so, without further ado, here is my conversation with Alex. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Alex Norman. Hey Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey Daniel, thanks for having me. No problem. Alex here, 
it has quite a long title, so please bear with me because he's quite accomplished. He is the head of Canada for AngelList, and he is also the co-founder of TechToronto and the partner at N49P. So Alex, that's a lot of stuff there. Can you provide us kind of a brief overview of what those three ventures are for you? Okay. First thing is all three are related. They're all trying to help build the tech ecosystem in Canada. So briefly, AngelList is a San Francisco-based company that helps founders build their businesses. There's three parts to it. One helps founders recruit talent. Others help find customers. And then the third one's help find money for their companies. So what I do in Canada is I launched what's called a venture arm. Got it, got it approved to run in Canada and now run it. I can get more details later on that. Tech Toronto is an organization that's trying to help push the, the Canadian tech ecosystem forward. What we believe is we want you to meet the right people that you need to advance your career and get the right knowledge. And we do that via events and a digital membership or digital platform. And finally, N49P is a venture fund that I've launched that focuses on investing in early stage Canadian companies. Mm. So you're like, first consider the first check in there and we we lean in and help the companies be successful gotcha yeah i went to my first tech to the tech toronto event uh, i think last year might have been early last year um i went to go meet your co-founder jason through like a mutual introduction and so that was my first event and it it was a little intimidating for a first timer who is just barely relatively new to the tech scene when like it was just surrounded by like so many people i just didn't imagine it'd be so big so um it's interesting if you say it's intimidating because one of the purposeful things we did is if you look historically in, in this ecosystem, there was a lot of events in the past and there's two things we wanted to avoid. One was a lot of them have people pitching themselves or pitching their companies when they get on stage. Mm. We wanted to focus on more sharing knowledge. And the second thing is we wanted to make it welcoming um, because lots of these older events would have the same 50 to 75 people in the ecosystem. So if you came and you weren't one of those 50 or 75 people, you'd find it very intimidating. And we found our, our thesis and our belief is to grow this ecosystem. We have to be welcoming and Tech Toronto should be that place you can come in and get to meet people and then make your transition from banking or retail to go work at a tech company and it demystifies the industry. So I'm, I'm glad you came and I'm glad you met Jason. I have to work on making it less intimidating now. Well, so I, I'll actually expand on that because I don't want to give the wrong impression. So when I first, when I, but I think that might be the same for anyone who comes to a new environment, like before so i came early and so i just didn't know what to do with myself at that point so i just kind of sat down and then as i think when the conference kept on going and people came up and they were sharing what their companies were doing and then i could actually start com- conversing with people around me and so when i left i'd actually made some like friends per se and met some new cool people but in the beginning there's a little bit of getting used to for someone who just had no idea about the tech industry so that's that's good feedback. I'll incorporate it with the team. We we've talked about having people that go around and like our, we have volunteers that help us, and we've been talked around about having the volunteers going around and engaging people or creating areas where people could see, hey, looking for a job or have themes so people know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, one way we get a, I guess, by that is you, you came to I guess TechTO, the main monthly one. We have we have a bunch of sub communities. So like we have one that's focused on health or we have one that's focused on travel tech. And the idea there is that also, hey, you know, if you're in health and you're a physician, you know, coming to TechTO might feel very weird because you know nothing about technology, but hey, there's something on health. This is my community ready. It's focusing on technology and you'll meet more like-minded people. Um, again, and that's all going back to our goal is to help advance the community. And part of that is making it 
easy for you to involve with the community. But mm-hmm. I'm going to take this feedback and see what we can do to make it even more welcoming at the main one. Awesome, awesome. And on to- in regards to like AngelList, so you're the second person from AngelList that's coming on the podcast. I had a friend of mine who's an engineer on the talent team who kind of even overview on that. But with you coming from the venture side, it kind of paints a picture of how actually big AngelList is. I think you guys manage something close to like a billion dollars in assets, so- right? It's up to 1.8 billion. 1.8 now. Wow. US dollars, not US Canadian. Dollars. Wow. That makes uh, it even bigger for yeah. us. <laughs> um, you know, that makes like two and a half, I think, yeah. Canadian. That depends. I think oil's gone down a couple. So Canadian dollars gone down as well. Um, so I've been at Angels for a while. And I think the way to look at it is really three different companies in one, all trying to help out founders. So the talent team is really focused on providing a talent marketplace, which helps recruit talent. So... And I don't know much of what goes on there, to be honest, anymore. Um, the second thing is we bought a company called Product Hunt in late 2016. And you can think of Product Hunt as where companies do their PR announcements, but it does more than that. It's where they launch products, but they can also interact with the early adopters to get feedback before they launch those products. So it allows you to get your early customers, get sort of that buzz going. And then the venture arm really does two things. We help founders get money, but we don't do that directly. So talent, we help people meet or recruit directly. What what venture does is it provides a digital. It basically helps it make easier for people investing into into companies. And so what I mean by that is we have a back off a digital back office offering. So if you want to run a venture fund, we can do the digital back office for that. Or if you want to invest in one company and it's what's called a syndicate, so get investors behind you. We have a digital back office for that. So you can come to us and use just the digital back office. It helps founders because now people have an easier, more affordable way to invest in them. And the second way we help is we also have what I call a capital marketplace. So if you're using that digital back office and you want to raise more money for the companies you're investing in, we can introduce investors into you. So we then now help the people who have chosen to spend their time finding the right companies and investing in them, get more capital to put to work and help, help again. So indirectly, we're getting more capital into companies and helping founders have a bit better chance and longer runway to actually build their companies. Mm-hmm. And N49P, like it's a separate early stage venture company. So why is there a, why did you create a separate one when well, you could do it through Angelus? So I guess Angelus is a marketplace. So Angelus doesn't make direct investments themselves. Right, right. Right. So either people are coming using our digital back office and they're bringing their own investors to the platform, or we have plat- people, like, people, individuals, high net worth individuals, um, institutional investors that have come to the platform to find access to those deals. So the difference between AngelList and N49P is I'm a customer of AngelList now. So at AngelList, you know, we'll, it's a marketplace. What, what I'm now doing is I'm being one of the people in the marketplace. So I use the digital back office to run my fund. I also have had capital come from the capital marketplace as investors into my fund. And the rationale is I was an angel investor before I started the angel list and running a fund allows me to go back companies that it basically allows me to get investors to trust my opinion and invest in companies I see fit. So there, I thought there was a gap in the market where we needed help at the earliest companies don't necessarily are, are hard to get big checks from. They're usually relying on friends and family. And this is my ability to support companies that um, would have a fi- hard time raising from quote unquote institutional investors before. And even if I were to take those deals and try to syndicate them on AngelList, they're really early. So if someone in New York or San Francisco looks at the deal and goes, don't understand these, these who these founders are. They they don't have a, you know, the proximity to market for a month. I'm not, I don't, I don't, I may trust Alex, but I don't want to 
I don't feel confident writing a check into that. So having a fund allows me to deploy capital in people that trust me. So um, the way to look at it, it's my my leveraging of the angelist marketplace. Mm, gotcha. And throughout your career, you've you know, you've worked in Toronto, but you've also worked in New York, San Fran, London. But right now, as you said, these three ventures are kind of focused on creating this tech ecosystem in Canada. Did you? Where did you grow up in Canada? So I. I Grew up in North York, which is basically Toronto. Uh-huh. Um, it was then a separate city. I think sometime in the 90s, it all amalgamated. Uh, but yeah, grew up in North York. Uh, was born there. Was in the same house till I went to university, which is in Montreal. And I actually never thought I'd come back. Really? Um, you know, went to McGill. Uh, had a great time. And after that, I went to the States. And I'm like, okay, Toronto was a very different city when I left. It was was fragmented um the downtown was sort of the downtown wasn't lively and i didn't think you could make a career here um so when i left you know and, until i moved back and probably until a year before i moved back i, not, I never thought i'd move back here mm-hmm. and before we get into your post-university career i want to focus on your high school venture so you had something called alex norman collectibles and i read that you were able to generate something from thirty thousand to sixty thousand dollars a year or something in yeah. annual revenue just from this business you started in high school and you kept so running even in university i'll take a step back so how that started and yeah and so early on i, I think like many people i had a weekend job i was actually working at and selling at a jean store um they had two locations i don't think either exists anymore and i had a hobby uh, as a geekiest hobby as you could i bought comics comic books and i was an avid collector and i was spending more money than i was making and I'll give credit to my father, who has a small accounting practice and firm. He said, well, you can either work more hours or find a way to make it pay for itself. And the world was very different then. This was pre-eBay, pre-internet. There was, an abil- there, was an, there, was, there was inefficiencies in the market. So what I was doing was two things, uh, you know, in retrospect. When I was investing in, in comic books, um, like I had a Superman, I had lots of, Big famous issues, uh, Superman 1, um, Justice League 1, uh, Fantastic 4-1. So I'd invest in them. And then what I was doing with the buying and selling was there was art, I was getting wholesale prices and then retailing them. But also I was able to – there was arbitrage opportunities back then. So you could there was newspapers, like hobby newspapers. I could see stuff selling in Florida, buy from there, um, and then sell them here for two, three times the price just because whatever is popular here might not be popular there and vice versa. And then after a while, as I set up a proper business, I was um, buying and selling at, well, you know, we used to have comic book shows every month in the city. And so I could be buy collections cheap and sell. So it was a, basically retail and an investment, both doing retail, typical retail, you know, buying cheap and retailing it at a, a retail price. And then it was also investing in, and then if the investments worked out, I'd have then a lot of copies of comic book, which I could sell at the right time. Um, so I started that in high school and where it really started getting profitable is it, in the university for various reasons, I decided I was not going to do this anymore. And I started also liquidating or selling my uh, investments and well, it, it paid for university. Wow. Was, was the concept of starting your own business, this kind of entrepreneurship flair, something that resided early on or how did it all come about you think i don't know it's again i think i was encouragement so you have to 
I think lots of people get encouraged by the the context that they were brought up. Mm. So my father had his own accounting practice and lots of his clients were entrepreneurs. And, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time at his practice, met a lot of his his clients. And so it's modeled for you. And when I started this business, I didn't think of being an entrepreneur. I didn't think of it. It was just a way to pay for my collection, my collecting habit. So... I wanted to spend four or five hundred dollars a week or whatever it was. I had to find a way to pay for it, and I don't. At that when I started, I was too young or too naive to think of myself as an entrepreneur. I think later, when I was in university, I realized that's what I was doing. And it's funny, I got less entrepreneurial coming out of university. I was not entrepreneurial, and it, but I think there's always been an entrepreneurial. There's always been an entrepreneur inside me. Mm-hmm. And so you went to McGill for business, and after McGill, you went to work at Lehman Brothers. Uh, yeah. For some people who are too young to know what Lehman Brothers is. <laughs> well, well, if you look them up, you probably don't see a good history. And I was not there when it imploded. Um, and that's, I was actually surprised it imploded. Um, so maybe I'll give some context to McGill. I went to McGill. Um, originally, I was going to do something like a Bachelor's of Science in Mathematics. Uh, went there the summer before. I was, I, I got, you know, I was supposed to start school and start talking to people. I'm like, oh, I have to learn the volume of a falling leaf. And I'm like, what's the practicality of this? And then what appealed to me about business, I, again, I had now had a bit of business experience or entrepreneurial experience. You could use math, which was my forte. And um, so like finance and stuff like that, use math. And I took a, I, you know, it was then called a, a concentrated MIS, which is management information systems and, and finance. And before I went to McGill, McGill actually changed my outlook in life. I thought I'd come back to Toronto Montreal, I went to McGill because it, it had a good reputation. It was located in Montreal. I wanted to be a big city, and it was far from Toronto. I didn't want to stay in Toronto. Um, but if you had asked me where would I go after McGill, it would be come back to Toronto and I'll do something here. But amazing thing about McGill is you had a very international uh, student body. You had a lot of people that had lots of global aspirations. And again, being influenced by the context and your peers – I said, you know what? I want to go work in finance, and the place I work in finance is New York. Um, and then, so I guess you asked what what was Lehman Brothers. So actually, I did stop in before I actually started Lehman Brothers. I worked a few months at a company called BlackRock, mm-hmm. which is a large that that was a large, um, or is a large mutual fund and ETF company. Yeah, I think and they I, manage a couple trillion yeah. dollars in assets. It was a lot smaller back then, <laughs> um, and I took that because. So investment bank, so Lehman Brothers is an investment bank. An investment bank, they do usually either sales and trade, so they sell and trade financial securities, or they do investment banking, which is like mergers and acquisitions. So helping companies buy each other or helping companies raise financing could be debt or selling selling some other company going public. And, you know, at that time, some of the banks recruited on campus, some, you know, some of the consulting companies recruited on campus, but not many. So my goal was just to get to New York. I got into BlackRock, um, and then a few months later, you know, so Lehman Brothers actually don't think recruited on campus, but then a few months later, they it was a boom times, they needed more analysts, and so via connections, I got an interview there, and I joined it, and I did, I, I joined a tech M&A group, which was perfect for me, finance, tech, that's what I studied, that's what I was passionate about, and as an analyst, your job is basically to run uh, Excel models to do comps, which is mean, hey, let's get comparables. If this company is worth this, what's the rationale? Let's find some metrics. Let's find um, um, and basically put, uh, 
decks together. Decks are just fancy word for a bunch of Google Slides or I guess then PowerPoint slides that explain the rationale what will happen. Again, there's a lot of research behind everything, but and it and it's a it's a and tech M and A. What our responsibility was was to either help sellers or you know sellers get the best price for a company or buyers to get the acquire companies cheap as possible and get transactions to happen. And Lehman Brothers um, was one of the five or six biggest investment banks in New York. Um, the tech practice was probably third or fourth best, um, but like the type of deals you would look at, uh, you know, would be um, a company called AOL, which I don't know if anyone knows anymore, buying a company called Money, a money uh, Movie Phone. So, or um, actually, you know, a company called Laurel. <laughs> Most of these companies don't exist anymore. Or I help, I, one of the deals I worked on was EMC, which was a big storage company. It was a hot company in the storage tech at that time by a company called Data General. So, and as an analyst, you're the lowest of the low and you do whatever has to get done. So, Lots of the modeling. So, is this company worth forty-two dollars or forty-five dollars? What type of financing can you get? Um, when when there's they used to do what calls prospectus to explain the deals. You'd have to do, read them all, make sure everything's right. Lots of lots of uh, you know copy checking, proof proof proofing. Um, yeah, and then Lehman Brothers, I think at that time was probably several billion dollar company. Um, and their job, you know, they basically had all traditional investment banking roles. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I was on the other side. I was the auditor that read all th- through all the prospectuses, and it's yeah, it's uh, it's quite an experience going through all the legal documents and all the legal wording. And it's fun. I I feel you know I, I don't know about auditors, but the one person that made you feel good when you were there at two in the morning was the lawyers. Because here I was as like a twenty-one-year-old kid, and I could phone a legal firm and say, "Hey, I need some changes," and you get the partner. And I'm like. This is not right. Um, and then and, and, and talking about like other boring stuff, like the most glamorous thing they sold you on is you get to do this, what's called a roadshow. Um, if you're, you know, to either convince people that to buy equity or debt or even just that the merger's right. And because it just remind me of that when you talked about going through the documents and the roadshow, you'd go to, like I remember I did one, we went to 15 cities in three days. We had a private plane, which was a client, and you'd go to the plane, you'd fly, go to a car, go to meetings with a bunch of investors, you know, leave that meeting, they'd say, okay, we need to change these slides. Alex figured slides. It was okay if it was a digital presentation, but we actually had some some meetings, we actually had physical projections still. So I'd have to find a way to work, change it, get my changes to New York, somehow get a slide back to the next city where we're landing. So it seemed like a lot of glamour from outside, but it was a lot of work and a lot of menial tasks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, when I was an investor, I, I got to be on the other side of that and talk about you know being the twenty one year old who gets to get the partner of a law firm on on the phone. Like when I when I was probably about twenty five, when I was an investor, I had the VP of Barclays come up to me and give her give me her business card and say anything you need, let me know. And then I think, wow. I tried to get an internship from you guys like four years ago. <laughs> Did you tell her that? <laughs> no, but like that was going through my mind. I was thinking, wow, the tables have turned. Um, but well, well, you're the one that's making, helping her make her living. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like this, this. The thing about investment banking is, or it's a service job, and you eat what you kill. So they 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 want to make sure they keep the clients happy. Exactly, and you were the, you were in investment banking, like you said, there was kind of a boom period because this was the late '90s with the yeah tech boom and tech craze and i think in one past interview you talked about how you didn't necessarily agree with the valuations even even in your early years you could tell that 
this probably doesn't make sense, but can you kind of pick, paint a picture of how egregious it got from uh, what you saw? I don't know if the word was egregious. Mm. So, like, remember, I'm I'm a young guy still. Maybe I'm still a young guy right now, but like I was younger then. You look young. Um, I came out of studying finance, and you, you, your textbook definition of finance is very simple. There's a few ways, to, and, and even in, when you get trained in investment banking, they spend a month training you. It's like a few different methodologies of proving a valuation company. One, the one is called discounted cash flow, which says, okay, what cash does this company generate every year, and what's it projected to generate, and let's use some discount to get it's worth this amount, uh, let's say a billion dollars. Second thing is, what's the comps? And so what a comparable, it says, okay, it's like what you, most people do this with houses. Let's find comparable houses, and then let's look at the square footage or where it is, and you find three or four metrics to say, okay, based on what those are selling, this is one should be selling. Then there's a couple other things. There's also like transaction comparables. Okay, so is there a premium or discount because it's transacted? So you get trained this way, and when you started looking at what was going on in tech that time, the comparables we're using, so the discount cash flows did not work unless you had these crazy assumptions. It's like they'd look, oh, this company's going to grow 100% every year in the bottom line and it's not going to need any more cash. And, you know, you could, that might be true for a few years, but 20 years out, it's not true, or 10 years out in the terminal value. And then, then you looked at the comparables, they weren't using what would be the standard comparables. Standard comparables would be, you know, you know, X times revenue or X times EBITDA. And everyone started valuing stuff on X time eyes. Like how many how many customers, like how many eyeballs are looking at this company today? So like, hey, there's, you know, basically what we'd call page views right now or unique viewers. And and the multiples were like, it was like this, this company's worth a hundred times, hundred dollars for each person that comes to their page a month. Um, and you could see it and like my, and just from someone that's still very young, hasn't seen many cycles and go, this just seems insane. Um, but again, that's what the market was supporting, and companies got very valuable very quickly. Um, and you have to understand, compared to where we are today in the public markets, companies were going much, much public much sooner. So today, something like Uber takes twelve to thirteen years to go public, has billions of dollars of revenue. These companies were going public with five million revenue, ten million revenue, and they were, again, if you go back, I don't know what Amazon went public for, probably like worth a hundred million dollars. So you see much earlier cycle. So there's a the bar to going public was a lot lower, and these multiples were driven off stuff that weren't necessarily sustainable. I'm like, this seems a bit crazy. Now, in retrospect, some of those companies were cheap. Like you could have bought Amazon for I don't know what, or Google even when it went public a few years after the boom, they're all, they're all cheap or eBay. But a lot of those companies don't no longer exist. Mm-hmm. And after your time at Lehman Brothers, you went to join a couple startups. You worked at a company called TradeUp. Yeah. For seven months in New York, then you worked at Savio for eight months in San Fran, and then finally Simply Business, where you stayed for about two and a half years in the UK. And I'm curious during that time. So this was, I think you probably joined as the bubble was maybe somewhat popping, like maybe there were there were commotions in the finance world. But was it the conventional thing to do then? Was it still like hot? like because so, nowadays some people like I have a lot of colleagues now who reach out to me and say, "Hey, Dan, I think I'm gonna go into tech. Do you know anyone? Do you know anyone at Uber? Do you know anyone at Airbnb?" And so I'm curious about then the timings. If you look at all three of those, I think I started before the boom had officially in, uh, deflated. Mm. But I'll, I'll go back to the mindset. So here you are. You know what? What did, what did people want to do when they graduated? The, the, the premium jobs at that point were consulting and investment banking um 
private equity and hedge funds really started didn't start taking off to early two thousands, and you know because I I started my career basically ninety eight, and what was happening at that point is you had all these cool tech companies like despite what the valuations were doing, what attracted me and many other people to it were the ability to do something you shouldn't traditionally you wouldn't have traditionally been able to do at that time take a much larger role in marketing or like you just had access these these companies were growing fast all star for talent so they started looking for bankers and consultants people that had it had shown had been screened by someone else that supposedly had intelligence and and it gave them manager roles that would traditionally take till you after you get out of an mba or you're 27 or 28 and you've proven yourself and then on top of that these companies were growing fast in valuation so you said okay they can be you know pretty pretty profitable would be and then your sacrifice from a salary perspective wasn't much, and sometimes it was a bump up, which was unheard of. So, like, you know, investment bankers analysts got paid well then. There was a huge boost when I left because what was happening is it seems like all the bit more entrepreneurial risk risk takers left banking consulting within twelve to eighteen months. And actually, after the people that left, after the people that left, and the people, the analysts and associates that stayed. They probably weren't going to get left. Got reward for staying, and their salaries almost doubled to stay. So, like I remember, it was it was pretty common to leave and look for a tech company at that time. Um, and the effects of that in the financial industry actually, I think the base salaries almost doubled over a twelve to eighteen months period to retain people. So that's how that's how strong the pull was. Wow! And th- when you when you eventually moved into what was like the third startup, simply business, and you stayed for two and a half years, like what? What was the mindset then? Like, why why did you continue to like move between startups for seven months, eight months, and then stay at Simply? And then why did you eventually leave that one? So, so I, I, to understand that, all those um, they're all interrelated questions, mm, right? Yeah. So it's more why did I leave the other two quickly? Um, the first one, Trade Out, had all all the hallmarks of a company that looked great. The invest I can't remember who the investors were, but I think it was like. Morgan Stanley, Kleiner, you know, it was like when you look at who they're raising capital from, it was like here is a bunch of blue chip investors that know what they're doing. Big concept. They were the first business to business marketplace. They were trying to take on a hundred different marketplaces at once, like use them, use equipment, um, white good excess inventory across all the different industries, and it was based outside of New York. So I was doing a reverse commute, and it had a strong management team. So. I went there and joined. Um, I was responsible for building three or four marketplaces at the same time. And e- even as as crazy as the current ecosystem is, and, and I don't think the current environment's that crazy with technology, and we can get to that much later, but at that time, it's hard for you. It's hard for people to remember how crazy it was. So here I was, a 22-year-old. One of the categories I had was excess inventory in uh, what was called the hardware space, like like hardware, like like hammers and saws. And I'm negotiating with Stanley Works. Stanley Works at that point is like a Fortune 600 company. So it's a big company. Um, I was able to get the terms I wanted in the deal because I was promising to give Stanley Stanley uh, Tools, Stanley Works, um, warrants for every X, every X dollars of inventory they put through us. And they wanted to announce it at a quarterly, at a quarterly earnings. So I, I was able to negotiate hard against them they, I got 75% what I wanted, and they, and then they made an announcement saying, hey, trade out, we've just done a deal with them, we're going to put $400 million of excess goods through them in the next two years. As part of that, we get warrants to buy 1%. I 
I, I don't know what the terms were, but something like that, their stock got a boost because of that. And that's how crazy it was back then. So here I've got pretty cool responsibility. Coming out, it's backed by all these people. It's growing fast. But what it quickly became apparent to me is deals like I was doing with Stanley Works. I go to implement them. And at that time, they go, well, yeah, we have 400 million of excess inventory. We have no clue where they are. We have no clue. You know, so I'm like, how are we going to actually implement these deals? And then when, and then the few deals I saw getting implemented on the platform were basically brokered offline and not using our technology. So they like, you know, so I'm like, okay, there's something going here. There's an idea that resonates, but it's the wrong timing. The second thing I saw happening is we raised a ton of money, but then for every one of our verticals, you had another company raising almost the same much. So like we were doing um, excess uh, clothing, like, you know, you know, stuff that would usually be at uh, a blowout, uh, you know, discount shop, like, you know, the Calvin Klein discount. There'd be a company raised a hundred million just for that. So we had competitors in almost every vertical, super well financed. And I found it interesting. Um, one of the investors was eBay. At that time, they did not do business to business. Megabit Women was on our board. I found like within two to three months of a board meeting, some stuff would just automatically be announced on eBay. So when I looked at what was going on, I'm like, this is interesting, but I don't really buy into it. And at that time, I had a couple of friends that moved to San Francisco. I had my roommate actually went to work for a company. Um, uh, I can't remember if I have it down there. As, uh, you had I count on or Savio, Savio because it changed its name. And they, they interviewed me and they gave me an opportunity to go move out to San Francisco. So I said, okay, here's an opportunity to... Go be in the heart of where everything's happening and hopefully work with the company that's working. Uh, so trade out looked really good and interesting. It gave me a lot of experience on how to start building a marketplace, but just due to comp competitive nature and also where I think our supply, where our marketplace was, it just wouldn't be able to implement. It was the wrong time. Um, now Savio was another marketplace company um, and what it, the concept there, which attracted me, is you had a founder who left the VC to to run this company and start this company, and they were trying to um, move. They were a travel company, and what ha we were doing is we were selling airline tickets or cruise line tickets or uh, hotels, and what we do we get again excess inventory here. Um, we get limited inventory. And we have full disclosure on what's available. Hey, we have you know. On February 25th, there's a flight from Toronto to San Francisco and Air Canada. Uh, we have six tickets. It's at 4 p.m. It's starting at $700, and we'll keep on, it'll keep on falling on price until you buy it. And it was an interesting model uh, because the idea is we share some of the revenue with... The, like, so we got a cost basis. Let's say that ticket was $700. We get a cost base of $300, and any incremental price value we got above $300, we'd share with the supplier. And also, we'd give them information on elasticity. So, you know, hey, you hit, if this hits 450, it was sold right away. Um, this company, and again, my responsibility it was cruise line. It was building cruise line vertical and the vacation rental, uh, you know, and like more like timeshares and stuff like that, not like Airbnb. Um, my friend actually was responsible for airlines, and things were going pretty well there. Um, but three things actually. The company, the company imploded just after I left and I knew it was about to implode and it was, it was three things. One is, um, at that time, there was actually dearth of talent globally. So then we started recruiting people from everywhere and there was still, you know, so like we brought in a couple people without travel experience, without technology experience to be on the management team. 
that were just bad bad fits like just culturally they didn't, they didn't understand what was going on and they wanted to go renegotiate a bunch of supply contracts just because we went live the site's live we should now go renegotiate which created lots of ill with the supply we built up second of all that by itself wouldn't be an issue but unfortunately the founder um got diagnosed with brain cancer and had to take a step back she's still uh, last time i talked to her it was a couple years ago but she was still alive she recovered but now you had the the genius, the charismatic person behind the team leave. The person, the two or two right-hand men that she recruited were not appropriate fit. And then by the actions they had, we started renegotiating with all our suppliers. And the suppliers were like, okay, we want a big chunk of the company because they all, lots of airlines on a piece of Priceline, which went public and was killing it. And then you had Priceline. And what happened was Priceline and Expedia just had a lot more money and actually were able to compete with us and get, you know, it just, again, it started falling apart quickly at that point. And that's when, it's, then that's also when dot-com boom started getting shaky. So when, what happened was just after, uh, and at that time also, um, Simply Business, the founder there was someone I worked out with, Lehman, had reached out to me saying, hey, I'm just trying to staff this up. I need some people on the business side. So I went over and I had a good, I had one of the, the CFO basically said, we're probably going to return the money to the investors because if um, Karen, can't run run the company they're feeling that's what's the most prudent thing to do so i went over a weekend and met, met with simply business uh met the team trusted the founders uh, and i did it was four founders i knew one personally the other three seemed very smart and he vouched for them and didn't you know love some what their business models but i had enough experience to know what would work and what wouldn't i said this is not going to work and this will work and i said you know what there's a good way to get a job outside of north america see what you know the rest of the world's like given it's London, so it's not that different than North America, um, and basically accepted a job. And I think before I even, I went there for a week and I think I accepted a job on Tuesday from, and I was going to, and I was going to resign on Tuesday. And one of my colleagues said, wait till tomorrow. The next morning they said, okay, we're giving everyone like a severance package. So, and I'm like, and then on Friday I said, oh, I found a job. They're like, oh, that's really quick. But again, so why those two companies didn't work out? One was just clear was not that they were advanced of where it was going to be. The other one, travel was actually working online and lots of like cruises were just coming on. So it was actually the right company at the right time, but it imploded just because they couldn't have the management team and it just really from uh, bad health luck, right? And then Simply Business, I stayed at because we made it work. Um, and I came like for launch and I can get to why it worked, but various things that worked and it was starting to scale up. And I left because we got to what you know you'd call product market fit. And I saw that to scale it was going to be less was less interesting for me, and I saw that it was time to get my MBA, and so I got into a good MBA program, and it, you know, it, it was I was there two and a half years from like just after concept to us pivoting and figuring out what works to okay now it's a different let's get a team to scale up because that's usually what you did then, and I want to get my MBA. Hmm. Yeah, I think you joined Simply Business as probably like the first business focused yeah. hire then, and. The company eventually sold for something like four hundred million pounds. Yeah, and that. so you know, I think I feel like it might have happened where you have friends around saying, "Man, why don't you why don't you stay for for the ride?" But what what about the scale up process wasn't appealing enough for you to like postpone an MBA or what? Or was it the other side where the pull of doing an MBA was just so much greater? Well, so first of all, I never thought I'd do an MBA, mm. and actually, being at Simply Business convinced me an MBA was valuable. Because I said, you know, I had a basically undergrad degree in business. And I'm like, you know, what does an MBA really offer? I was very skeptical. But what I saw 
is three of the four co-founders had MBAs. I think, if I remember correctly, it was Columbia, Harvard. I can't remember the third. Was it Stern? Maybe Stern. Let's go with that. Yeah. Sounds good. I, I think from your past interview, you kind of mentioned something. Yeah. Like that, but... and, and so what I saw was their MBAs helped in two ways. One is they had a network of people that would just, they'd go to the alumni network and reach out to it, and they got meetings from that. So that was great. And that was usually, it's interesting, that was usually technology companies. Hey, we want to meet with AOL. Oh, there's a Harvard grad at AOL. We're both in London. We'll meet. The second thing was with more traditional businesses, it gave you credibility. So I'd go pitch something Lloyd's TSB, which was a big bank at that time. And they're like, okay, one of the things that would give us credibility was our investor, which was a which was a insurance firm. And also um, the MBAs of our founders. All oh, these people must know what they're doing. So that convinced me that an MBA is valuable. You get a great, great network. It's another form of branding that gives you credibility. Um, and also, you know, to be honest, I look at it as, okay, that's a two-year break. Um, it wasn't, wasn't that clear to me when I started, but that, that's what appealed to the MBA. But I didn't, you know, so that was a bit of the attraction. I said, this is a way to get me ready for further my career. It's something I can, it gives you access. And then what, you know, what was going on at uh, Simply Business was I felt the nature of the work I would have to do would change. And I think in reflection, I, I think that also, if you look at where I am today, the me knowing I couldn't articulate this back then, but I really like taking stuff from the concept to maybe, let's say, you know, you go the concept of zero to one and then from one to X, I probably like taking stuff from zero to two, actually taking a concept, figuring out how to actually make it sustainable, putting, getting the groundwork or the you know, foundation for the scale but scaling doesn't excite me, right? It's, it's a different challenge or problem and it's very valuable and that's how you make extremely valuable companies. But, you know, like we actually vertically integrated and we started controlling um, uh, contact centers for insurance companies, going to the middle of England, setting up a call center, you know, figuring out the HR policy and how to do that, stuff like that. Just, you know, and there's a, probably a playbook there. It that's, doesn't get me excited. And I wouldn't have been able to, explain it that way before but that's if i retrospect i probably think that's why caught the interest now in mba and got into a decent one and where the company was headed next uh the skill sets were different and it's, it was time for me to leave mm -hmm. and so you ended up going to wharton which is at university of pennsylvania yeah. which is a solid one of the top tier mba schools and after you came out of the MBA, did the thesis you had about it play out like the the network the value of the brand so again i i think a good MBA school provides, and again, Warden's a big school too. It's 800 people. You get put in the court of 80 people. Then you put in a team of um, four people to do lots of stuff in the first year. I think, just like McGill changed my perspective on life, I think the, the friends and colleagues and people I work, went to school with changed my perspective in life. It became a lot more global and a lot more, I was always in professional service and a lot more about other industries. I think I, the brand is helpful um i think the brands of mbas have changed a bit over the time i think we can get into that later if you want um but the network has been extremely valuable um in two ways one which i expected when they're the people i went to class with there's a subset i'm still good friends with um and we respect each other and they will help me out and i'll help them out or it's just you know it's just a call to learn about an industry and the second thing is there what wasn't apparent then and there's now more digital databases and every once in a while if i need to get in 
learn something interesting, I can go, you know, ping a digital database. And if I cold email someone that's a Wharton grad, I'd say my success of at least a response is probably 60 to 70% versus most cold emails is probably 25%. Um, so it has provided me with a network that's important. It's provided me with some of my closest friends and, you know, and business mentors are people I went to school with, but it's also opened up stuff. Um, the brand is valuable. I think it's it's less valuable in what I do today because there's a belief that MBAs don't know what they're doing when it comes to tech. I think that's a misconception. I'm biased. I also think that's because there's some big tech companies that now provide branding themselves. Like so, like if you if you were in Google in 2003 till 2010, that almost was like going to the MBA school. You got the brand because everyone wants to know someone from Google. You've got it was small enough that you know, you have a bunch of colleagues, and then also if you're going to reach out to a Google alumnus, they'll probably respond. So I think in a weird way, the comp I don't think what people understand about the good MBA schools provide all that, but I think there's a few now good employers that globally that provide that. Probably the Uber alumni um, will do the same thing. So I think the brand's valuable, and it's also valuable still in very traditional cor- corporate, let's call it corporate America. If I go talk to someone that's working at. Uh, a, a real a real estate firm they valuable because they still are hiring lots of MBAs. It's just in the tech sphere, it's, it's there's a bit more skepticism and they don't understand necessarily the value of an MBA or why it's uh, you know it's, the brand's on doesn't resonate as well. Mm-hmm. And I think you mentioned about the, the corporate branding and, and you, you've also attained that as well. I guess from Lehman and after yeah. Warren, you went to McKinsey. That one, you I think in one in one interview you said you ended up selling your soul to McKinsey because you had to pay down the debt for um Warren. yeah yeah you know <laughs> god I, you know i'm gonna get a, McKinsey's gonna love that i'll probably get a email from someone there um for that comment if someone listens to this um look McKinsey was interesting i went there i went to McKinsey in the summer between my classes uh i wanted to be back in london for more personal reasons um my then girlfriend who's now my wife I you know was in London, so I said I want to spend a summer in London working there. And really, your options were investment banking and consulting. And investment bankers were all trying to recruit me because they saw investment banking in your background. And they're all saying, "Oh, everything's changed." I'm like, "I don't believe you guys. Nothing's changed. I'm not going to spend a summer in investment banking." I went to McKinsey for a summer, had a really good project, and it was interesting. And the value proposition McKinsey sells you is, "Hey, if you don't know what you're going to do, come here and you can learn and explore the lots of different industries." And so I got an offer after summer from McKinsey, and I, you know, and it, it's not an, it's a soft exploding offer, which puts pressure. And like, I think I, how I sold my soul was I didn't give myself enough time to explore other options because the most stuff that were most probably appealing to me aren't necessarily recruiting on campus, don't actually go with a cycle for um, business school. But like, look, I had a great firm, what, you know, a great summer and an interesting role, um, and would have get me back to London that paid well and, you know, helped me pay off the debt from school. So it was what I took. And then it was a bit of probably cognitive dissonance because going back to what I, like how I described my, I like building stuff. And consulting is you're giving a lot of people advice and walking away. And then what's, what's similarity between all professional service firms is you want to do what's best for the client, but that's limited by also keeping the client happy to a certain extent. Um, someone that's in lots of these firms will push back and there's some people there's some partners that will do what's right but there's a lot of incentives to push the envelope but not break the envelope when you're giving advice to a client so if a client tells you this is absolutely no way we can do this it's very hard to tell a client this is what you have to do and I think you know so I think 
that's where I feel like I sold my soul. And that's the biggest problem I had. Even when even like, you know, Matt says this company should be 35. They want to buy it at 45. We're not going to get to 45, but we'll find, you know, maybe we'll go, re, you know, we'll say, okay, let, you know, is this really 36 or 37? Of course, if you ask anyone, this never happens. Likewise, when consulting or some products, I'm like, okay, I, you know, I think we're getting the wrong steer from the client. We're trying to synthesize it, get buy-in, and we're not getting buy-in. So let's, you know, don't go buy there, buy what the client's saying, but let's figure out something that's more close. And that's, that's, I'm too direct and too, um, too, too, I'm not happy with that. And maybe I don't, I don't compromise. Maybe I'm too independent thinker and too stubborn. So that, that's where some of the soul, uh, you know, soul comes from that term and also just missing building stuff. So, you know, and I'm also not good at politics, which in every professional service firm's politics become important as you go up. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's part of the trade of the yeah. professional service world, and yeah, I think it, when I think about my consulting days, there's definitely those kind of projects where you you work three months at this giant creating this giant binder of analysis. There's literally a huge binder, like six inch thick. We sold it for some like uh, kind of like a three million dollar binder. No yeah, idea what happened. Sounds, three months? That sounds about right. Yeah. A million dollars a month. Yeah. No no idea what happened to the binder. Um, or like I'll I'll spend two months building this amazing mm-hmm. model, valuing renewable energy plants. Mm-hmm. And then I tell them, we can't get any value out of it. It's not positive ROI. And then, they, no, but it has to make 15% IRR. So yeah. do, are you sure about the variables, Dan? And I'll, I, I guess I'm not sure about yeah. the variables. And, and, and there's that pressure all the time. <laughs> and, and there are people that push back against that. Mm. Um, and like, look, I spent a lot longer than I, I thought I would. Um, I actually, I think my friends at Wharton had a bet on how long I'd last and I lasted, um, and I think they had a pool and no one got that money because I was, I lasted a lot longer. And there's, there's two reasons. One, it facilitated my move back home, which I never thought I'd do. And two, there was interesting projects and there was like, and there was clients I really want, you know, there was like one client I ended up working for like a year and a half, um. And so did not at that year and a half I could not leave that client because I I think I owed it to them I really appreciate the career and you know and but there's a lot of things that were not right and you know by the time I, I knew I was going to leave I had to otherwise I'd go you know there there was a nice there was a big psychological damage um, if I stayed longer mm. right yeah you stayed at McKinsey for about just shy of four and a half years I think yeah four and a half five, about years. About five years yeah, yeah. and. You know, facilitating the move back to Toronto, that started you starting Home Save and then yeah. a bunch of other ventures after that. And well, the way- and that's all, sorry, let's interrupt. One other yeah. good thing that, really, you know, and I think when I decided we want to move back to Toronto, McKinsey actually was a good way to facilitate. I grew up here and I was gone now. And I came back, you know, I had no clue about the Canadian market. So it's, it's interesting because like a lot of what I did in my life helps me here, but really doesn't help me. Like there's not many working grads here, um, you know, have to be on Canada. I think McKinsey's McKinsey, the uh, the financial firm, and and I hadn't like the people I went to high school, the people that I knew, and most of them are professional services, like you know, like I'm like doctors, lawyers, accountants, and so McKinsey allowed me to do a soft landing back here to understand the, the work, but the actual business ecosystem here. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of benefits to that. Sorry, just mm-hmm. yeah, no, no, that, that also like paints like a clearer picture of the, the transition period as well, and so. You, I think there's a there's a lot of quotes where you're commonly quoted for constantly talking about optimizing for intellectual curiosity, and you're constantly trying to follow your curiosity instead of you know fame or money. Yeah. And I'm curious curious to know 
what kind of curiosity were you following with each of the kind of ventures that happened after McKinsey? Okay, so I think those are a few different questions. I think this is also comes to maturity of who I am and what I realize about myself. So you go back to the guy that was at Lehman Brothers. You know, I think how I was measuring my success was by the amount of money and capital. And, you know, and if I was doing entrepreneurial activities, it would be to make a lot of money. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to make a lot of money, but that's not the only thing I'm optimizing for now. And, you know, the, what I was going to do from McKinsey to HomeSav, there was actually a bit of a journey there trying to figure out what's next. Um, again, and so there's was, there was two things that I started doing at once before I came to HomeSav. I was trying to understand, while, while McKinsey gave me a good understanding of the corporate world here, I didn't understand the tech world. Like one thing is I was like, okay, I really miss helping build companies. So at that point, I net, and the tech ecosystem here was tiny at that point, I networked and met a lot of people who are tech leaders now. And basically I meet like the founders and these ones were a bit well-financed, you know, relatively speaking then. And so, like, I met, remember meeting Dan DeBow and his the team at WorkBrain. I remember meeting Stuart McDonald. I met um, Mike uh, McDermott. All these people had started companies that some exist now, some don't, but they're all well-established. And I met, like, probably 20 founders that mattered back then. And originally, my idea was, like, hey, I'm a business guy. I can come add value to you. And that market was so skeptical, like, oh, you're a McKinsey. We're probably going to have to pay you way more than we want to pay you. B, lots of companies are like, well, why do you need a business guy? Like, this is all about build the best product. And so I got to know the ecosystem here. I saw, and I, you know, so that, so I'm like, okay, if I'm going to work in tech, I probably have to start something. The other thing I started looking at, I go, okay, again, maybe I don't want to take something from zero to one. Maybe I want to buy a company. So I spent, and, and Jason, my co-founder of uh, TechTorn, will tell you how I spent half my time when I was decided to leave and he was going to leave, Yoma Garden leave. I'm going and meeting companies to look at buying. And then what I said is, okay, these companies I'm looking at buying, they're very fragile. Well, I'm going to pay someone to do this. So it just reinforced my desire so I did, an exp- I did an exploration. The first exploration was trying to figure out what I want to do next. And so when I looked at the market, I go, okay, no one, there's no really stepping stone in the tech ecosystem here. It doesn't make sense to buy anything. Like and I, I probably looked at 100 companies um, and I was looking at those companies with my co-founders at HomeSav. And then we started, you know, we started talking about problems we had and then HomeSav was more something that's scratch our own itch. Um, at that point, we realized that you know, so there was Eliza, Amnon, and me. Um, Eliza um, had one kid when we started, and I had one kid. I, I just had my kid while we were going through the process of looking, exploring, buying companies. And we realized that you think of home decor and furniture as something you buy once, right? Um, what you do is, oh, you, you know, you graduate from, you go to university, you had a kid, and then once that, you think that's it. Then you're going to go, you go get a condo in Toronto, and you're like, okay, I'm going to buy stuff. And then what happens if you're doing well, or and it's less, or at that time it was more possible than now, but you go buy a house. And you buy a house, you furnish it, and then you have kids, and everything you bought is not kid friendly, so you'll buy, you go refurnish again. So we said, okay, there's actually, you can build a good relationship with people if you can walk them through this journey. Second of all, there's really very few strong brands in this category. And third of all, the timing looks right that the home decor and furniture is going to come online. And so this this all came out of problem because we were just, literally, all of us were talking about, we were redoing our, like, buying new furniture for her house. And Elisa had, had it, like, Elisa had it with refurnishing for kids. I had it because we had moved, um, we had moved um, into this big house in the annex when we moved back. And then we had, again, we just had a kid, so we're redoing everything. And then Amnon had moved a couple times. So that's how we found a problem. We saw an interesting solution. We thought the time was right. And that's why we started HomeSav. And so that, you know, 
that was it was more trying to solve our own problem. And it was also facilitated by as I was trying to figure out what's after after McKinsey, I did explore getting into tech ecosystem, explore buying something and the needles possibly seemed feasible or interesting. And so I said, okay, here's a problem we have. I have two co-founders that seem that are complementary. Let's go build this. And and so that was that was HomeSav. Um and then what was your rest of your question? Sorry. Just just the idea on um it's kind of a catch-all question where I want to see how the kind of arc of all these transitions okay, were so, related to like your so HomeSav curiosity. And again, and so HomeSav just high level there. We can you know double click on that later if you want. So eventually we sold HomeSav. Uh, the choir wanted us to stay on. Um, you know, I stayed on, and then the idea was I, in my mind, I'd probably start another business next, right? Um, when we were. I'm just trying to think how to best phrase all this. So, so actually, what I thought after we got acquired, it'd be like a year or two at acquire, and then I'd start another business. Um, it ended up being about nine months a year at acquire because they had changed their strategy. They were going to roll up a bunch of e-commerce businesses, and they decided not to do that after. And we were all performing our targets, but for various reasons, they changed their strategy. So I went through another exploratory process. I did start doing three things at once, and one was. Um, Jason, who I was an analyst on my team's own as engagement manager at McKinsey, came back. We had stayed in touch. He was working in Seattle, came back and said he wanted to get involved with the ecosystem. And I said, okay, let's start this organization. Let's find a way to get back to this ecosystem. Because I go, my my, I had worked in tech in New York, San Francisco, and London. And I believe we had talent that can compete with them. But there was some stuff that the, this ecosystem could be more cohesive, could learn faster from each other. And that was sort of the origination of Tech Toronto. Jason's is already getting involved. Um, in the ecosystem, my desire to get back. That was supposed to be a three-hour-per-month hobby. We, and again, we started off first helping another organization. Then we started doing the first tech TO, which I think was nine people. But there was a curiosity to get back and a way to get involved with the ecosystem because um, he had moved back. I had had blinders on building a company. Second thing was I started using lean methodology for a few companies to build my next company. And so I went through two or three ideas in the span of like a nine months. Where we had I had ideas. It's I brainstormed, find a problem I wanted to solve. Like my wife got pregnant, or we got a second kid on the way, and I remembered all the pain in finding uh, daycare. So I said, okay, how can I help with the waiting list? And we, you know, did some explore lots of time. Lean methodology ended up killing three businesses, and some of them. One of the, one of the, one of the concepts had a lot of traction. It was like at I think twenty five thirty thousand dollars revenue after the first month. But for various reasons, all these businesses we, I, I killed. I didn't believe in them as as long term ideas. And I started giving advice to a bunch of founders. And somehow, despite not having something to take all my time, I was still at, at, at this point, I think I'd left um, the choir and, you know, starting something that was supposed to be three hours per month, um, doing lean mythology and advising companies. Again, I found myself working 60 hours a week. I go, okay, what's, what's going on here? This doesn't make sense. Um, and at this point also, I found I really wanted to help build an ecosystem here. Um, Tech Toronto, what happened? Tech Toronto started taking more and more time as it seemed that we had something that just resonated with the community. Um, my advising had taken more and more time. So I turned around and said, if I, my time is limited, I can't get my time back. If, so if I'm giving some of my time and, and, and helping him, helping a company with introductions, something like that, my reputation. Um, let me limit those. And I started angel investing to limit my commitment to other people. So that if I can't feel comfortable giving some money, which I can always hopefully earn more money, why would I give my time or risk my reputation? So 
what happened over this period where this muddling period where um tried three ideas kill them all and i said after the third one i said i'm not going to try something right now because i feel if i'm just now starting just looking for a problem to justify starting something i had gone from giving a lot of advice to just focusing on a couple companies to help with by giving money and then giving my time and then tech toronto started taking more time because you know someone was asking us to bring it to vancouver we saw the ability to do sub communities and it's okay let me lean in here and make this a sustainable organization so and each of them let me learn something different um Angel investing and helping founders is somewhere between being consultant and building something yourself. And I was learning how to do that. With Tech Toronto, I was learning how to build something that could be sustainable, give back to a community that's not really a business. And that's not, you know, that wasn't the intention. Like there is revenue, there is a bit of cash flow, but the purpose was how do we have impact and change something way beyond ourselves. So that was the intellectual curiosity. And also both those let you meet a lot of people which again i like being challenged i think i like meeting new i like seeing how other things and both those uh, gave them the ability to that and then angelist came out of they were looking to launch the venture platform officially in canada so they had some companies raising from some canadian companies raising money in the platform they had some investors from canada but they regulars that said hey if you ever want to do some scale you have to get regulatory approval and i was busy figuring out how to make you know sort of institutionalized for lack of a better word i don't think that's the right word uh tech toronto i was helping out a few companies and then angels approached me and i spent like three months saying okay you know what this really aligns one one thing i never said tech toronto said there's there's canadian companies need at that point you need to build the the, the visibility of the toronto story and the canadian story globally so let's help with that um second of all companies need connections to talent and we need to learn from each other and we need money the first three things Whereas I thought Tech Toronto could help up getting more money in the ecosystem never could help help, help out. And so the angels reached out to me. I knew who they were. And I spent three months getting to know them. Very mission aligned. Let's make life easier for founders. Second of all, allowed me to get more capital in the Canadian ecosystem. And third of all, it was a huge learning opportunity to say, hey, how do I go from being an angel investor doing this by myself to learning from some of the best and brightest? And the team, when I met them in San Francisco, was probably one of the most impressive teams I've ever met with. So came on as a consultant and that became, you know, head of Canada. Um, so that's sort of how that transition was. Again, like I don't, lots of people say, here's my North Star, here's where I went up in my career. Um, here's the values and stuff I, I, you know, that inspire me and then they work towards that. I'm someone when there is, I like, I need to be, I need to enjoy what I'm doing. I need to be intellectually curious. I know the parameters are much more than I used to. But there is periods where I sort of muddle through and then figure it out by going out and researching and finding and finding what intrigues me. So, and that, you know, maybe I don't have the foresight and vision to know what makes my career, but that's every, every transition period. Now, if you look at where I am now is, you know, I'm very passionate about growing the ecosystem. I'm very passionate, you know, in tech ecosystem across the country, but focus in Toronto because that's where I live, but helping out Vancouver and Montreal because I think if you have all three ecosystems working, it helps each other. And... I, I optimize for doing stuff that I find interesting. Like N49P was how do I institutionalize and how do how can I help, help early stage companies and do it in a way that is beyond just capital and scaling what I do and bringing other people to the table. And so there's a mission behind everything I do. Everything I do is sort of correlated. What I do for a living right now is just interesting. Like helping people start new companies that change the status quo. You meet a lot of interesting thinkers. You have to think differently. 
and and it's fun um and so right now i don't think i hope there's not going to be another muddle through period for the next 10 20 years but you know i'm not someone that knew like i i probably had some goals that were just you know for lack of a better vanity goals um and i think over time i've known myself better and then there's periods where you have to take a look take a step back and try a bunch of different things to figure out where i want to invest my time mm-hmm. yeah and in i think those kinds of muddle periods where it's from my experience sometimes like when when i look back on it it's not long but when you're in it it can feel extremely long and i i think you might resonate with this too where i i think i'm also the kind of person where i learn best by experience although yeah. i'll read like i'll i'll listen to naval Ravikant's podcast like non-stop and he's he has all these lessons or i'll read all the books like you see here and it still doesn't seem to like really hone in as like a learning until I actually do it and I make a mistake and I go, oh shit, yeah, right. I read about this in this book or this person said it, but now I think I get it. And then there's the frustration there from even like, and I I experienced that a lot even like during the modeling periods. And I'm curious for you, like what your, like, it's kind of an open-ended question. How do you deal with it? How do you, what your experience is so, like? Let me unpack that question. First is the muddle period. How do you stay psychologically sane? I agree with you. Every day seems very long and doesn't seem like you're making progress. Um, I, I think you just have to realize that that's how you operate, and you have to you event. You know, you have to figure out how to measure success because the fact that I've said no to something is I've said no to it, or you know, or I've learned something about myself or what I want to do. That's 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 uh, learning and an advancement, but it doesn't feel like it. I think the other thing which I was very lucky at at this point, and you know, I think I've surrounded myself by the right people. Um, I think you want to have the right people that inspire you and push you, but you also want to have the people that support you through this. And, and it starts with my wife, who I think my career would be very different if I, if I didn't have her because she sort of like keeps me sane and gives me the support when I need it, gives me shit when I need it too. I also, going back to some of the friends I made at Wharton or McGill or along the way at different places, are there also to provide that guidance and support and also if you if if people if you have enough honesty with people, you see other people have gone through it, and then you can ask them for advice. So that that's how do you deal with the muddling? I think, like you, I'm a, a, I'm a voracious reader. Um, but there's a you know, and I think you're probably being too hard on yourself because I realize there's some stuff I'll read and go make that mistake. So angel investing, some of my early mistakes I made. If I read a bit more, if I absorb what I read a bit more, I probably could have avoided those mistakes. But I think there's a if if you are analytical, there's some stuff you can learn from proxy. And the best way to learn is you don't, if you have, if we have to make all our mistakes ourselves, you could do very slow advancement in life. And there's a subset of stuff you learn from proxy by reading or seeing other people do. But I think why I, I have to make some of the mistakes, even though I know they're mistakes because I've read about them is it's almost like going back from first principles and understanding the underlying meaning about that, right? Like why does a venture investor need to have a company that can be a billion dollar outcome? And you can do the math and then figure it out. But then you're like, okay, here's the exception. And, you know, this company's the exception because I'm sure A, B, and C. And then you go through and make that investment. Not that I would make that investment. But um, you then see, you see it play out and you understand it just becomes, and I think it's, I think there's a need to, like, you understand, you read something, you think you comprehend it and you absorb it, but then there's a need to understand from first principles. And And I think that's why, Lots of people make mistakes, even though they get advice not to do it. And it's very different. And I, I've met some people that are like 
like kids that you tell them, don't touch the fire, you're going to get burnt. And they will touch the fire and they do that in everything in their life. That's very different than uh, reading a bunch of different stuff and, and a sub-selection sub of stuff you have to go learn. And I think that's because there's some stuff that's so not tangible, right? Like I, I'd like to think if someone says, you know, like don't run out of money when you run a company. I, I didn't have to learn that because that made logical sense to me. Right, and I understand that, and there's but there's other things you read about, like okay, it makes logical sense, but I need a you, you need to get more fidelity, and an experience gives you fidelity that no that reading or conversations can't. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm trying to think what else there was to unpack there. Um, I think that's most of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's that makes sense. Yeah. It, I like that you tied in first principles to the idea of like you have the experience to actually un- unpack it and actually whittle things down and. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I'll give you a very asinine. Um, you can read about a first kiss. You can have your friends tell you about a, a kiss. You can watch it on a TV or show, but there's something, there's a whole other level of fidelity in first principle when you have a kiss. Like, <laughs> like you can't, you, there's some, there's just, and, and like, there's just some stuff and it's different for everyone that they have to, you just have to experience, right? Like, you know, it's, it's much easier to understand with the physical thing. Like, hey, I can, again, skydiving. Until you do it, you don't get it. Right? Yeah. Like, and then like, I'm a, I, I was or I am a runner and I can explain to non-runners about running and, you know, and half the multi, you know, half my friends eventually try it, hate running and think I'm stupid and don't understand what I'm describing. But there's other ones like, okay, now I get it. I get this, what this runner's high is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like that with our careers and it, and it's, it sucks because we think we should learn everything and then without having to experience it. And I, I think there is an advantage of doing that, but not everyone, you know, can't do it. You can't do it a hundred percent of the time. Otherwise... When you do learn something first, you might get confused. <laughs> Experience something that hasn't been written, you get confused. I don't know. Yeah, no, that that's also true too. As as we kind of um, get to the kind of final five minutes of of this interview, I'm curious to ask, what what kind of um, belief do you have that you think just goes against conventional wisdom, whether it be in business or in career? That's a good question. I'm trying to think of when it comes to mind. I, I don't know. Lots, lots of stuff. I think that used to be controversial or not accepted. I feel are more accepted now. Like I do believe taking care of everyone and that everyone has to make money. I think optimizing for yourself is a shitty way to build a business or build go through life. But the flip side is, I think to build. I think a lot. If you want to, if you want to will or build multi-billion-dollar company, lots of those people are are not nice people to work with. Mm. And I think there has to be they're they're willing to sacrifice everything else to build those companies, and I think that's one of the. So I, a I I think you have to think like my personal value belief is take care of people train like if I hire someone I want if when they leave they're going to be in a better position and that's because I give them the ability to be in a better position and I try to take care of everyone and, and sometimes I worry too much about making sure everyone's taken care of and I think in the flip side is I do believe though I to build outsized returns and. You, there's people that make extreme sacrifices, and a lot of that sacrifice is, is um, treating people well. Hmm. I, I think it's very hard to build something five billion dollars without being a couple, not, with being a, yeah, just with being a great person. Like, mm-hmm. uh, however you define a great person. Mm-hmm. Like, like I think I have that most respect for what Elon Musk has built, but I've I know many people who worked with him, and they wouldn't be. He's taking care of himself first. Right. And you also mentioned how the way your career has progressed, you know, you, you didn't have this kind of far-off visions. So that's that's what I'm going to go for. And 
I'm curious if if you were to reflect back on let's say like the the early version of Alex, let's say the the 21, 22 year old who's in Lehman Brothers working through on his pitch decks, and if that Alex were to look at what you're doing right now and where you're at, what do you think that Alex's emotional reaction would be? One way disappointed that I'm not more rich. Um, like I'm fine, but like, like if I looked at 21, 22 year old, I'd probably said, oh, I need to be at the 30 and the 30. And that's before it was like 60,000 different versions of the 30 and the 30. Like it's like, that was like by net worth. That, that's my goal. That's my measurement of success. Very plain, very simple. And so they would be, but at the same time, they got to know what's going on. They'd be, he'd be pretty happy to know that, you know, I think just where I'm from, how I appreciate my whole life. As kind of a spin-off question to that, then how has your definition of success changed? Like, what is it now compared to then? I think it's a very inward. It, it's being satisfied with where you are, and again, I'm in a very privileged place in life where I feel. I worry, you know. I feel that I don't have to worry about money. Look, I worry about money, but like I feel like there's always a way to make money, so that that lets me think differently, but. I think success is being satisfied and satisfied with what you're doing, wanting to do more, but knowing that you you're, it's, it's choosing your own adventure, and is enjoying life and but make you know it's hard question to answer. It's just it's being comfortable in your own shoes and and doing what you're doing for a purpose mm-hmm. and 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 enjoy and being able to do that and enjoy life the way you want to enjoy it and it's and everyone's gonna be different right um so you know don't get me wrong like there's days where i'm like what the hell am i doing and why am i doing this and i'm, I'm you know i'm a failure i'm you know but i think more days than not i'm pretty satisfied and pretty exci- i'm excited to go to work i'm excited to be doing what i'm building on it it pays it, pay, it you know lets me provide for my life my life i'm in a healthy shape i was not healthy as a 20 like i was a i probably weigh 40 pounds less than i did at 24 right now and uh, and that was not muscle i lost um and i have a good and i have a good family life and that's what's important for me some people don't want to you know some people don't want kids some people like it's just finding what makes you happy finding what cha- what satisfies you across multiple different bar- uh, you know you know from intellectually career wise family wise spiritually wise and 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 going after that achievement and then keep on pushing yourself like like again, like I'm not a not very spiritual person, but I don't. If someone loves spirituality, they should they should pursue that. So I think it's just success is being comfortable in your own shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, being I guess yeah. internal internal scorecard oriented. Yeah, that was a bit that was a bit of a ramble to at the end there. Sorry, <laughs> no worries, no worries. And the final question is: if you could give your 22 year old self advice, what advice would you have liked to give it? Give yourself space to figure out what you want to do. Hmm. Like 22-year-old Alex was working hard. It was, a, it was a prototypical investment banker. Working hard, measuring success by dollars, and then parting hard. So if I wasn't if I wasn't at work, I was out parting. Wouldn't trade that experience for anything. But I think the more time to self-reflect and get to explore and know what I would be, what I wanted to do would probably have got me to where I needed to be sooner. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Alex, is there anything we didn't cover today you wish we had 
covers like you have a very extensive career so we didn't get to cover everything but is there something you wanted to kind of talk about we but we didn't get to no i i think we covered a lot i'll probably think of something tomorrow but it'll be too late then <laughs> all right well alex thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your journey and your story with myself and my audience i, I had a lot of fun thank you dan All right, thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It hopefully it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast, and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com, and Go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate. And donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that know if you wanted to chat with me you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat you might buy them a coffee so i'm just think of it as i'm the service that's doing that for you so you can just pay me in coffees <laughs> don't worry uh everything will still be free it's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that i can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further. So your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute. And so, yeah, just check out the website, go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right, thank you.